Hey, how's it going? Episode 7 of this Chief End podcast. Uh, I've gotten a couple of very good responses and questions to a handful of the previous episodes. Um, one, uh, good, good prolonged discussion this weekend over episode 6 with a couple of friends um, regarding uh, Christian evangelicalism in America promoting a culture that demands allegiance to particular systems instead of demanding allegiance to Christ, uh, which I think, as I've said previously, is pervasive throughout pretty much every denominational vein uh, that we have present in the the church today in America, um, and also had some good laughs over making fun of Stephen Furtick's biceps um, in a couple episodes ago. So uh, good times to be had. Um, I hope everyone had a great Easter. Um, not to sound irreverent, but since Nacho Libre is one of our family's favorite cinematic, uh, entertainment, uh, devices, um, it's hard for me to not refer to it as the Easters, um, because that particular monk, uh, as you might remember, uh, did not prefer Nacho Libre's cooking because it had given him the diarrheas since Easter's. Um, so that's a random side note, but that's what my mind thinks of um, when this, when the celebration of Easter rolls around every year. Uh, our Easter was interesting. Um, I'll level with you guys and, and be very honest. Uh, we actually attended a different church um, than the church that we have been members at uh, since 2012. Um, we attended a different church because we figured it would be a good time to uh, kind of show up when a lot of visitors were there. <laughs> and our home church would think that we were on vacation. So there would be no questions of, well, why weren't you at church? They'd just think, oh, they're probably away for Easter vacation. Um, so we did visit a different church um, in the exact same denomination as the church that we attend now. Um, as I've shared before, we have been in the PCA uh, since 2012. Um, previously had been in the EPC uh, for about four years, three, three, four years prior to that. Um, and we're dealing with some interesting things in the PCA. Um, and I understand to some degree why there's the split between uh, Westminster West Coast and Westminster East Coast. And I understand that there's a lot of uh, controversy and debate over the third use of the law. and uh, and it, may, it all makes sense because, you know, you look at Tulian, one of the largest, uh, loudest proponents uh, and uh, purveyors of the idea that the third use of the law was not needed. And, of course, he's also led the charge in very, very obvious, very, very uh, wholehearted moral failure. Um, and, of course, that strengthens the position of those uh, demanding that the third use of the law be vital in, in the Christian's life. Um, but something that's been going on at our church, and I, and I think it's related to this concept of the third use of the law, um, it's something that I, I'm realizing, and I think I'm beginning to articulate as a Calvinism that circles back around to being Arminianism. And you might say, well, what the heck are those two terms? Well, 
historically Arminian, the Arminian viewpoint of the, the scripture is that man is responsible for uh, salvation. God offers uh, the gift. He throws out the lifeline, but it is up to man to grab a hold of the lifeline. Or, or as the non-denominational megachurch I used to work at said, God wrote a, wrote a check to you, um, but you must go through the process of cashing it. Um, so the emphasis in the Arminian circles is traditionally put on man. It's, it's man's free will to choose what he shall do with this offer of salvation. Um, contrasting that, the Calvinistic side says, well, no, man is dead in his trespasses and sins, and it is God's mercy and his mercy alone which saves. And God not only uh, grants the free gift of grace and salvation, but he grants the faith required to believe that, and he grants the monergistic regeneration, uh, the new birth that happens in the believer's heart when God grants that gift to them. Um, so those are painting with a broom. Those are the two camps that the church has uh, sort of perpetually uh, been sort of falling into. Um, but the observation that I'm making recently is that it's not a linear uh, difference. It's not that you have a, a horizontal line and on one side is Arminianism and on the other side is Calvinism and never the two shall meet. What I'm, what I'm beginning to see is I think that this, this uh, supposed or this theoretical horizontal line is actually more like it represents the poles um, not Polish people, but the poles on the globe, the poles on the earth. So you have the North Pole and the South Pole. And it's it's very much equivalent, I think, to a longitudinal, uh, that's a fun word, it reminds me of major pain. I feel like major pain should have said longitudinal. <laughs> Attitudinal. Um, it's a longitudinal line that uh, bends over the North Pole and extends on both sides of this a sphere down to the South Pole. And, and I think at the North Pole, you have trusting God. And I think at the South Pole, you have the opposite, not trusting God, trusting yourself, trusting man. And I think that the extremes of Calvinism end up bending down the opposite side of the sphere and they get, it gets, the end of that line gets very, very close to the Arminian line, which is bent down the, the opposite side of the sphere. And you go, whoa, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, I'll just give you a little bit of background on what's happening in our church. Um, our church had, it is very conservative as far as PCA goes. So if you had a spectrum of modern PCA churches, you might think of Tim Keller uh, you might have thought of Tulian. Um, ours is, is about as traditional as you can get without sliding into the OPC. Um, there's no worship group. Uh, actually, I take that back. There is a piano player, a, a violin player. Uh, they do have a couple singers up there. But everything's out of the hymnal. Um, everything is driven mainly by the piano. Uh, the pastors are in robes. Um, there is, there's no electronics, there's no slides, there's no video. Uh, they make it a point to never applaud in service. So 
um, that, that took us a while to get used to. Um, a missionary would come and share. And, you know, our experience was after they said, thanks for having me. I'm here after the service. Come talk to me. Everybody would clap. Um, but our church has made it a point a handful of times over the years that we don't applaud because we're not applauding people. We want to direct our attention and our affection to God. Um, all fine and well um, can understand it. But the the traditional nature of it uh, has increasingly become, in in our estimation, my estimation, and especially my my wife's estimation, is being um, very cold, uh, very formulaic, and somewhere around coinciding with the death of our pastor's father. The, the whole kind of mood and, and preaching and theme of the church uh, kind of got on this suffering track. And at the time, I said, well, I can understand this. I mean, Ecclesiastes says there's a time for mourning. There's a time for laughter. I get that um, there's different times and different seasons for different events. And obviously, the, the passing of a, of a parent is a time for mourning. Um, so I said, you know, that's fine. Let's let's let him mourn um, and work through that. But we're we're pushing up on two years here, and the mourning and the suffering uh, has just continued to get heavier and heavier um, and more depressing um, and darker and and just very very heavy with melancholy. Um, so going back to the, the the line of, you know, if I were to paint sort of the mood of an Arminian church versus the mood of a Calvinistic church, you know, I, I think on the one hand you have the Arminian church, that, think of the mega churches, the, the Stephen Furtick's, the, um, the passion, um, the passion groups, the whatever that place up, the Hillsong groups in New York, um, where everything is always constantly 100% roses and butterflies. And if you have any sort of issue in your life, then well, obviously you're in sin and, and Satan is, or God is judging you because you have something amiss in your life. Um, sort of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And that's obviously uh, out of balance with Ecclesiastes' view on seasons and times for different things. Um, but I think what's happening on the extreme Calvinistic side is it's just taking the polar opposite of that view and instead of insisting that we are perpetually giddy and perpetually riding some sort of spiritual goosebump wave, it's taking the opposite position and saying that we must perpetually be riding some sort of near suicidal level of burden. And I'm to the point, and I, and I don't mean this in a joking fashion at all, the last four months, I have wanted, my soul has wanted to put a noose around my neck and dangle from the balcony at the end of every service. And it's very, very odd to me because I, I never expected Calvinism um, to be so dark because my understanding of, of the Calvinistic sort of philosophy uh, coming into it is, you know, very anchored in the, in the, a lot of Spurgeon sermons, um, anchored in the whole concept of God doing the saving, um, anchored in the whole concept of God being the foundation, Jesus being the rock. 
So as opposed to the charismatic side, the non-denominational side, which says that my emotions are the rock and my experience is the rock, the, the, the reform faith comes along and says, no, no, Christ is the rock. God is the rock. His mercy is the rock. And that has a very stabilizing uh, effect on your soul, especially when you're coming out of that volatile emotionalism, uh, which is so um, well you know, observed and demonstrated by the Hillsongs and the Stephen Furtick's and, and a lot of those types of, of faith movements. Um, so I, it's, it sort of blindsided me, to be quite honest, because although I, although I have read tons of Puritan books, and I do know that they tend to lean, or they can get pretty heavy and pr- pretty depressing, I sort of just chalked that up to the time they were living in. I mean, the life expectancy was mid-40s. People were dying of the plague. Uh, you know, you never knew if you were going to get the influenza and, you know, 20% of your town was going to get wiped out. I sort of just chalked it up to the volatility of that era. You know, you cut your finger and, you know, don't wash your hands after you go to the bathroom and the next thing you know, you're dead because of some nasty infection. Um, and they weren't aware of these things. So I sort of just chalked it up to um, the the time frame in which they live. So it's very peculiar to me that that heaviness carries into, you know, the, the 21st century when we are no longer victims of those types of circumstances. I mean, yes, our life is still a vapor, but, you know, the average life expectancy now is 76 and we know, hey, don't get you know, don't get uh, feces in a paper cut. Don't, you know, don't uh, spread germs, wash your hands, take antibiotics. I mean, we have all of these advancements in science and medicine that makes, that on, quite honestly make our lives probably the best quality of life that have, that has ever existed in the history of humankind. So, um, so it, it has perplexed me. It has perplexed me. Um, and it's caused me to conclude, as I previously said, I don't think it's a horizontal line on a on a horizontal plane. I think these things wrap around the the sphere, so to speak, and meet at the bottom pole. Um, and they both they both end up consisting of the same thing: trusting yourself. And one thing our pastor has done is he's sort of, you know, you talk about hills to die on, and and you know hinges, and you know different scriptures that sort of drive your entire philosophy of thinking. And he has hunkered down on Romans 8.17, um, which concludes, it's a great verse, um, tons of promise, tons of uh, hope in it. It says, you know, as children, um, we will be heirs and we'll be glorified. And it's very positive, but it ends, in the ESV at least, by saying provided we suffer with him. And so he's taken that provided we suffer with him and turned it into a perpetual 24-7, 365 day a year suffering. Just like the charismatic side takes the rejoice in the Lord always and turns it into a perpetual, hey, I don't care if your family just died in a car accident. You need to put on a smile and tell people that Jesus loves them. Um, So it's just as detached from reality, and it's just as detached from the balance found in Ecclesiastes 3 as the charismatic side is. 
Um, and as I've said, they both anchor at the Southern Pole of being rooted in a trust in yourself. So, oh, I just need to muster the joy because it's up to me to be joyful in order to secure God's salvation. And, and oh, I must suffer. I must suffer. Um, and I think what I'm seeing with the congregation, um, the, the sort of the mood of the congregation, and this brings up an interesting side topic of, you know, do you leave a church when the sort of mood of a congregation gets to the point where it's suicidal? <laughs> like, is that grounds to leave a church? Um, and I mean, most of the time when you talk about leaving a church, it's over like, you know, theological issues, um, you know, but this isn't, this isn't so much like opposite theological issues. It's, it's balancing issues. It's overemphasis on constant suffering. It's, it's ripping Ecclesiastes three out of the Bible. It's, it's removing the balance that, Hey, there is a time for laughing and celebrating and lightheartedness. It removes from the equation, Jesus saying that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, it takes the focus off of Christ bearing our sufferings, of Christ bearing our sin, of him bearing our shame, and it puts it all back on us. And it, it really reminds me of something that I've said for a long time to my friends and, and family and children regarding pastorpreneurs, that you know, if you if you harken back to Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian comes to the gate, uh, the wicked gate, and he comes through the gate and he comes to the sepulchre, the cross, and what happens? The pack which has been burdening him miraculously loosens, and it falls into a, a cave, essentially a pit, and he never sees it again. And the point that I've made with pastorpreneurs on the on the charismatic side is that they've staked their ministry at that cave and their all of their activity focuses on spelunking down into that cave, retrieving the pack, strapping it back on the backs of their followers, and then loading it up with a bunch of crap. It's blowing my mind that a reformed position is doing the exact same thing. Our pastor is staking out his entire ministry at this cave, and he's spending his time spelunking into that cave, retrieving the pack, and then packing it full of burdens, and packing it full of suffering, and 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 making it be the linchpin to getting to the celestial city. Um, this is my contention, and and it, as I said, it's it's very, um, it's something that I think holds true. I think it makes sense. These, this is not a straight horizontal plane where the two never meet. It's, it's, they're both wrapping around to the same pole, which is somehow trusting myself in order to earn favor with God. And it is crushing my soul. It's crushing my wife's soul. And even to the point where there, there were three or four, uh, very, critical Google reviews, and which is a whole nother topic of a podcast. I've been wanting to talk about the whole notion of leaving a Google review for a church. Like, <laughs> it just seems so frivolous to me. Um, 
Oh, it just, yeah, I don't know. It's silly. The, you know, I, I expect ratings to be reserved for restaurants and movies, not, not the Holy Church of God. So the whole concept is just silly to me. But with that said, um, there have been three or four reviews left on Google for our church that have all mentioned depressing. Like, wow. One guy even said, man, I grew up in a Lutheran tradition, in a Reformed tradition, and I've never sat through such a heavy depressing understanding of the scripture. Um, so th this is something that has really been burdening me um, and really been burdening my wife. And it's why we decided to visit uh, a different PCA um, for Easter weekend. And what we discovered when we went there is that there's a family who used to attend our PCA who now attends, or they're now members over at the other PCA. And, and we're having lunch here this week uh, to, to discuss, but I suspect from uh, the little conversation we had on Sunday that their reasons for seeking out a different PCA uh, were rooted in a lot of these similar concerns. It just so happens that they maybe saw them sooner or they uh, just decided to take action in response to them sooner than, than we did because they've been gone for a little over three years now. Um, so it's it's very uh, it's very sad because whether you're on the the charismatic side or you're on this extremely depressed Calvinistic side, they're both burdensome. And I can speak from tremendous experience on the charismatic side because that's what I grew up in. That's how I came into the church was through the hey you got to commit, you got to decide, you got to bust your tail for God, you've got to sacrifice for God, you've got to do, 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 and be happy, happy, happy. Um, and then if there was a bump in the road in your life, well, uh, you're not called. Uh, so, but but now seeing it on the other side, it's it's you must suffer. And, and I think the thing that's really probably the worst practical fruit of this is, so Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, that the wicked does not see blessing when it comes. And this is a verse that rocked me back in 2008, 2009, when the economy uh, blew up and my business lost a tremendous amount of marketing uh, clients. And we went through a, a few year period of extreme financial hardship. And that verse came, uh, a friend of mine shared that verse with me and he said, hey, you know, the wicked do not see blessing when it comes. And it really convicted me at the time because I thought, well, here I am equating God's blessing to money and clients and prestige and all these things. And I look around and I have a loving wife and four wonderful children and health and um, God's mercy and grace and his word and extended family who loves me. And I wasn't seeing that as blessing. So it was very convicting. But I, so I think the, the the most damaging practical fruit that this uh, descent into depressed Calvinism is uh, playing itself out in our church. Our church is comprised of easily, and this isn't an exaggeration, easily 95% of the people in our church live in the top five wealthiest zip codes um, in the, you know, the surrounding area that probably comprises, you know, three or four million people. Um, extremely affluent, extremely wealthy. And with the exception of a handful of people who have had uh, cancer in the last year or uh, some family deaths in the last year, 
there's a lot of blessing. There's tremendous amounts of blessing. And there's very little reason to complain and and to to play the victim and to to play the martyr. But what this theology is doing is I think it's forcing people it's it's almost maybe maybe they're not aware of it, but it's making them create fake suffering. And I think that's not only damaging for them individually because you know, I was talking to a particular individual and and he was talking about the the suffering of being able to make a decision on which house to buy. And I was going, dude, that's not suffering. <laughs> Having to make a decision on which affluent purchase you're going to make is not suffering. So it's damaging to the individuals because I think it's creating a culture where they're trying to one-up each other with this fake suffering. Um, Ergo, putting them in the category of being wicked by not seeing the blessing when it comes. And the second thing I think it's doing, which is equally, if not more damaging in the community, is people who are not in those affluent zip codes, if they hear these wealthy, uh, comfortable people playing the suffering card, they're going to throw up in their mouths and never want to hear anything that those people are saying. It's like when you hear, it's like the reason why I can't watch professional golf anymore. All these 21, 22, 23 year old kids are making millions and millions of dollars. And then they complain about some fan talking junk to them on a particular hole. Or they complain about, oh, the greens were so hard today. Shut up. You're making $10 million a year playing golf and you're complaining. I don't ever want to watch the PGA Tour again. And I guarantee that's the sentiment going on with people who are at the median income, at the poverty level of income. If they hear rich, wealthy, affluent people creating fake suffering, they're never going to want to hear the gospel that those people are trying to proclaim. Ever! They're going to be royally pissed off, royally offended, and it's going to create a grudge in their heart towards, for sure, that group of so-called believers, but likely a grudge towards anyone naming the name of Christ. So I I don't understand the short-sightedness of this descent into depressed Calvinism. I don't know if it's and I can't get at the bottom of it. I've, I've, I've asked questions and I've just gotten skirted answers and a reference to, oh, well, this theologian really says that, you know, in order to be Christians, we got to suffer. Well, so what? There's theologians that say in order to be Christians, you got to speak in tongues and get slain in the spirit and have your own personal freaking prayer language. But that doesn't mean that it's actually accurate. <laughs> <laughs> we can find whack jobs that say all kinds of stuff. Oh, this is what the scripture says. Well, not really. Um, so I, I, I can't figure out what it is. I mean, my, my, if I were to remove myself from the situation, like let's say that a friend was calling me <coughs> and saying, hey, you know, I'm 2,000 miles away, different city, different, different town, different state. Um, and this is what our church is going through. And he outlaid the problem and explained it to me. I would just very uh, sort of disinterestedly, unemotionally say, I think there's probably something deeper going on under the surface with either the pastor himself and or the pastor and the elders. There's some sort of conflict there 
whether it's a sin issue, whether it's a disagreement about the, the direction of the church, whether it's whatever it is, there's something deeper that is troubling the elders and or pastor or both. And that would be my summation. And in a year or 18 months when something blew up and it came out and it was made public, I would go, yeah, see, I told you. So that, that's my that's my jaded um semi, not semi, like almost fully based in experience, uh, take on this thing. <laughs> Perfect example, my brother-in-law, who I love and am praying for tremendously. Uh, about two and a half years ago, he, he called me and had a concern. He was at a, he was at a famous satellite campus and he had a concern. And I, the same thing I said, uh, probably is a sign that there's some nefarious things going on and it's probably going to blow up in the next 12 to 18 months. And voila, it blew up and it was a national scandal and the guy was disgraced and everything imploded. So I don't think that it's um, unfounded that that's very much a potential issue. Um, so, you know, in the meantime, I think I think that the response will be to continue to dig the heels in on this depressed Calvinism. Um, I think it will be to continue to skirt what the real issue is going on underneath it. Um, and the question I've been asking myself is, do I really have the energy? Um, do I, is it really in my family's best interest to, tr to try to change the direction on this thing? And I'm concluding, and it might just be my, you know, almost 40 year old uh, laziness of going, hey, you know, these, these leaders of churches, they get their vision set, they get their heels dug in, and there's no removing them until the Lord removes them. Um, there's no changing them until the Lord changes them. That's sort of my my approach at this point in time. And it might be fatalistic and it might be a little bit uh, lazy on my part. But honestly, I'm not in full-time ministry. It's not my job to keep the balance from the pulpit centered. That's not my freaking job. It's your job. It's what we pay you six figures to do. So do your God-blessed job is sort of my position. <laughs> Which is why I haven't been going to Sunday school, because I know that I would spit that out in Sunday school, and I don't know what kind of drama that would cause. So I sort of passively, aggressively hide behind this podcast. <laughs> um, so... Uh, no, I, I have had public... I have had face-to-face -face discussions with the pastor. Um, and as I've said, it's, it, it gets skirted and, and not addressed. Um, and it's very opaque and very sort of like, oh yeah, we're not really going to talk about this because I, I don't know why. Um, I can I can only I can only uh, hypothesize at this point in time. So we're just past thirty minutes. Um, I want to try to keep these around thirty minutes um, because I don't like it when preachers get long-winded. Uh, and I'm sure that you don't like it when podcasters get long-winded. So uh, things to consider, uh, things to ponder. If you have thoughts, questions, comments, feel free to visit chiefend.org. Look for the episode seven post and leave a comment. Um, you can, yeah, that's probably the best way to do it for, uh, for now. Um, if you want to send an email, um, you can do that at podcast at chiefend.org podcast at chiefend.org. Um, I think that covers it about it. Like I said, I hope everyone had a great Easter. Um, 
And uh, I, I'm more than happy to be challenged on this uh, wrapping the horizontal line around the poles. I think it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and the more I've pondered it over the last few months, the more uh, I see the similarities in both sides trusting themselves, whether it's the, the, the fake uh, joy or the fake suffering. Both are no good. Um, so I'd like to uh, close, if I may, with... Um, Where'd my phone go? Here it is. Uh, so there's a Spurgeon sermon I was reading on this very topic. And what I love about Spurgeon is he, sort of in the vein of Octavius Winslow, always defaults back to Christ, which my position is that that is never a bad thing to do. <laughs> and again, go back and listen to episode six. The system of evangelicalism, all of the little branded pockets we've created, in order to remain in them, gainfully employed in them, in order to gain respect in them and prestige and advancement, you must adhere, you must pledge allegiance to the system. So maybe this is the vein, the system, that whatever... You know, maybe this is the system that this uh, that our pastor is in, and in order to stay there in gainful employment, he must pledge allegiance to this thing. I have no idea what's going on, but that wouldn't surprise me one bit because every church has their pledge allegiance to our doctrinal statements. Um, and as I've said before, they can't all be right because a lot of times they're opposite. They're opposed to each other. <laughs> so this is what he says on this passage about being uh, heirs, children, then heirs. If children, then heirs. He says, this cannot come by meritorious service. And I, I, I would put in there, um, well, we'll let your mind do whatever you want with meritorious service. I think of suffering. Uh, if children, then heirs. Not if servants. You may toil and keep on toiling all your life, and that will not make you an heir of God. The servant in the house, however diligent, is not your heir. None of us have servants anymore, so you'd have to kind of mentally think back to when people had servants and it was socially acceptable. Uh, for a servant to claim to be the heir would not be tolerated for a moment in a court of law. The servant may be able truthfully to say, quote, I have been in my master's house these many years, neither transgressed I at any time his commandments, and all that is right for a servant to do, I have done for him from my youth up. End quote. But if he were to go on and to add and ask, quote, what do I lack? The reply would be, quote, you lack the one thing that is absolutely essential to heirship, namely sonship. Oh, how this truth cuts at the root of all the efforts of those who hope to win heaven by merit or to obtain the favor of God by their own exertions, exclamation point. To them all, the, exc the exclamation point's really there in the sermon. Uh, I didn't add that for, for dramatic effect. To them all, God says what Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, birth alone can make you children, and you must be children if you are to be heirs. O oh, sirs, if you remain what you are by nature, 
you may strive to do what you please, but when you have dressed out the child of nature in its finest garments, it is still only the child of nature, finely dressed, but not the child of God. You must be, by a supernatural birth, allied to the living God, for if not, all the works that you may perform will not entitle you to the possession of the inheritance of the Most High. Amen. Mic drop. Can we focus on Christ, please? He didn't say that. That was the last, the mic drop was not in the original, uh, the transcript of Spurgeon's sermon. <laughs> Although, how awesome would that be if you were reading a Spurgeon sermon and there was actually, he said, mic drop. Um, <laughs> that would make me believe in time machines or uh, editorial license. Um, probably the latter more than the former. Um, I said, I've said in previous ones, and not to be too judgmental, because judge not lest you be judged, but I, I have, I've questioned um, in previous lectures, pre- not lectures, previous episodes, previous podcast episodes, of, of questioning why is it so common for pastors across all veins of denominations to not have confidence in monergistic regeneration. And I've hypothesized that perhaps it's because they have not experienced it themselves or that the degree to which they have experienced has been so diluted and so drowned out by their allegiance to systems that they can't palpably taste the regenerating work of Christ to convert people. So I could go on that uh, preachy, uh, screamy um, thing for a while, and I've done that in the past uh, with previous episodes. So uh, thanks for watching. Rewind three or four minutes and listen to that Spurgeon quote again, because it is, uh, it's money. It is gold. Um, So if, go back and listen to that. And then uh, we will talk next time. Again, if you want to leave a question or a comment, go to chiefend.org, find episode six, and post a comment. That's the easiest way to do it. Um, If you want to remain anonymous, send an email to podcast at chiefend.org. Adios, and have a wonderful evening.